There's a, a phrase in the scripture in the New Testament called the uh, elementary principles of the world. Uh, the Greek word is stoikion, uh, near and dear to my heart as a chemistry teacher because there's a, a topic in chemistry called stoichiometry. And maybe you, uh, if you paid attention in high school, you might have learned something of this. But knowing this group, I'll just move on. <clears throat> the elementary principles, as are listed in the scripture, are the ABCs of the earth, of life. It's not just, for instance, as you, you, you know this, right, periodic chart of the elements. This is all there is, right? This is it. All over the universe, this is what is found. And um, this is how God has designed it, uh, to be uh, these particular atoms, these particular elements. As you know, they combined in different they combine in different ways to make the stuff that we're familiar with, uh, and so these are elementary principles. The when it comes to people, though, our elementary principles are not just the material stuff that makes us up, the food that we eat, and so, and so on, but it's also the way that we think and the way that we live. And if you're an unbeliever or if you're, if you're stuck in the world, there's an elementary principle to your life. And you're stuck with that. Right? You're stuck here. You're stuck in earthly. You're stuck in worldly. You're very, very limited. ABCs of life are photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. Uh, <clears throat> and I thought, you know, this is just too fun. But um, the number of atoms on the left don't equal the number of atoms on the right. Yeah? You remember this, right? There's six carbons here, so we need a six here. Uh, we need a six here, and we need a six here. And you balance the equation. You're like, please don't do that. But why do you need six carbon dioxides? Because the glucose that you're making that is absolutely necessary for life God has designed glucose to have six carbon atoms. And if you don't have six carbon atoms, you don't have glucose. So you need six carbon dioxides. The dreaded, the dreaded carbon dioxide that's killing everything. <laughs> Global warming. Now, this is <clears throat> water. This is the actual fuel that was used to lift this enormously heavy space shuttle out of Earth's gravity. Uh, liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen basically just makes water. Once this thing took off, this all that blowing out the tailpipe there, it's pure water, and it'd rise up as a cloud, and it'd rain. Pretty cool. The reason I give you this is because we're able to harness this elementary principles. Right? We're able to take and things that God has made and combine them in creative ways to make stuff that's you know very helpful and very cool like fuels. 
So, and that equation is also balanced, isn't it? That's the chemistry teacher in me, yeah. So, why do you need two hydrogens and only one oxygen? Because hydrogen as an element comes as a diatomic particle. There's two hydrogens. It's not alone. It's never found like that. God made it like that. Oxygen is O2, not just O. And so it's always like that. Always. It never changes. But then, Jesus came along and did something like this. All right? He took H2O and he made it into wine. Now, that is not a balanced equation. Not only that, it violates the law of conservation of matter, which is a basic chemical law, physical law. There's 14 carbons here, Jesus. Where in the world did you get them? And how did you put them together in ways that would make, and this isn't the only chemical in wine, it's the main chemical, but there's tannins and others. There's like a dozen chemicals in a fine glass of wine, which is what he made. How did he do that? Because he didn't use the elementary principles. He used otherworldly principles. And the reason why I give you this is because today we start in the next uh, paragraph in our in our Second Thessalonians that God has done something with you that is otherworldly, and He's given you a life that is otherworldly. And what He has done, and all His miracles point to this. Raising the dead, he made you who were dead alive. Bland old water into something that's fine and wonderful, that's what he's done with you. You're not supposed to be bland anymore, by the way. You're a fine wine. Some of you are very aged. As if I, ah, sorry, I couldn't resist it. I couldn't resist it. Some of you are bitter. Some of you are sweet. Some of you have that sediment in the bottom that drives everybody crazy. There's a word for that. I just learned that word. I should stop. Yeah, thank you, Sue. Thank you. That's why I like you sitting right up front. So um, what we're going to see today is that this miracle uh, is transferred to us. And we're given life in Christ that is an absolute miracle. And we're not, therefore, as Paul's going to tell us, we're not stuck in the elementary principles of the world. <clears throat> God is not going God is going to motivate us by doing one thing. And really, he's not going to threaten us. He's not going to say, oh you better do this or you I'm going to kick your butt when you get up here in heaven. He's not going to do anything like that. What, he's going, what he does is just basically tell you that I've made you into fine wine. So, now that you're my wine, or as we'll see, my crop, be what I've made you to be. And that's his main motivation to us. It's really quite wonderful. It's a wonderful motivation. Um, one announcement to make before we get into our service, and that's uh, I'd like you to ple please pray for Pakistan. Um, I get periodic ma uh, messages from Fazl John, who is the leader of Grace Bible Church Pakistan. He's over there now, and the persecution against Christians there is monumental. Uh, there's bands of Muslims roaming around, killing, torturing, imprisoning 
uh, Christians. So just to keep them in prayer, and his name's Fazel, if you could keep him and his wife Carrie in prayer, Fazel and Carrie. All right, let's pray and we'll get into our song service and our message. So asking God for humility and thankfulness that you already have, I'm sure, and that so that we can learn from his word and we'll learn today uh, his plan for us as his crop. Uh, So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that through your word, as we return to it every time, we are seeing what you have made and what you have done and who you are. And through your son, Jesus Christ, who became a man, he came into this world and brought us who were on earth to heaven. He's the mediator. He's the bridge. He fills the gap. He did so by his cross in his resurrection. We thank you, Father, so much. You have done all of this on our behalf, and we hardly know uh, a small amount of it, and yet we are amazed. May we continue to be so. Guide us, Father, by your Spirit to see the life that you want us to see in our next passage. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please.
got you got your coffee? <laughs> got to stay awake for prep school. <laughs> All right, Second Thessalonians chapter two, and we're moving uh, last paragraph in chapter two, and verse thirteen. So this week we'll tackle verse thirteen through seventeen, and um, and and what Paul is going to do here is kind of switch gears. We've we've spent a lot. Uh, as Paul has led us to, to speak on eschatology, the end times, uh, the Antichrist, the tribulation, the, um, and I'm, I'm too loud, aren't I? Am I too uh, little tinny, Alan? Just uh, uh, test one, that sounds about right. So, um, and now uh, Paul's going to switch gears to the fact that what we have in Christ, and that is... Uh, what is an amazing principle of truth that God has given to every believer. And it is something that uh, we must take seriously and not just think, well, as some do, that it's some kind of like foundational thing and we need to move on to the more complicated stuff or the more advanced stuff. I tell you, when, when Paul talks about milk and meat in the Scripture, He's not. This is meat. I mean, he's talking about the, the meat is a depth of understanding about things like salvation. You know, who are we in Christ Jesus? When you think about it, it seems quite strange that a person possessing eternal life and heaven itself would be unhappy. It doesn't make sense, right? I mean, you've hit the jackpot, right? It's strange that a person possessing eternal life and heaven itself would be unhappy or bored because they lack some earthly thing. Yet this is precisely the condition of many Christians. So every believer is elected to a fulfilled heavenly life in Christ. And what we're going to focus on today and in maybe a little bit more this week is that when you became born again and saved, right, born again, you were given a new life. And with that new life came also the fulfillment of that life. And there's no other life in, on earth that's like that. So we take, we're going to be looking at crop a bit today. So when you start a crop, say it's in your garden. You start, springtime came and you started your planting. How are those crops going to turn out? Anybody's guess, probably dead, who knows, right? It depends. We have no idea. There's good crops, there's bad ones. What about life? You know, you have your newborn child. Edgar's had a, uh, Haley had a, a baby this week. How's the baby going to turn out? You know, how's that? And what I'm, great, right? <laughs> you know, they're going to turn out great. But how are our children going to turn out? Well, you know, we pour heart and soul into them, but there's no, my point is, there's no guarantee. When God elects you, He gives you the guarantee at the moment you're born. There's no other life like it. Your destiny and the fulfillment of that destiny, your purpose, your end, is given to you now. We're not even waiting for it. It's given to us now. And you see what Satan did with the doctrine of salvation 
is create, which Paul vehemently says in his writing that, and the other writers, but especially Paul, that salvation or justification is not by works, right? It's by faith. Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5. It's beautifully put. Couldn't be clearer. But yet a great many Christians believe still that salvation, the end, needs to be worked for. So, you know, you, you've started the process, but it's kind of like things in this world when they're born and they grow, you're on the process. There's no idea, am I going to turn out well? Am I not going to turn out well? Am I going to be successful? Am I not? And I don't know. And that's salvation by works. But that's not it. God says, I have made you in my Son justified, righteous, sanctified. And you will obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a phrase we're going to be looking at quite a bit this week. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it? If you know what that is, and you know that you have it, yeah, there's going to be days where you're unhappy and bored. We can't get around that. We're sheeples. But they're going to be few and far between. Because you're going to understand what you have. And really, you have gained heaven itself. So, uh, every believer is elected to a fulfilled heavenly life in Christ. We're no longer part of the world of this age. We're no longer a part of it. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. So, Paul starts with a, a particle, uh, de, de. Uh, it can mean and or but, depending on the context. And it's a but, and it's because he's switching gears. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at verses 1 through 12, which is all dealing with eschatology, the day of the Lord, the coming of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and so on. And now he says, but, because now the business of the Antichrist and the day of the Lord that the Thessalonians were obviously a bit confused about, Paul has clarified, and so we no longer need to talk about that. That's done, and now we're going to move back to you. Right? Paul's now going to get, let's get back to today and you and who you are. And yet, Antichrist is coming. Tribulation is coming. God's plans for the future, they're all coming. And if you got that all down pat, great. If you're a little confused about it, that's okay. What you shouldn't be confused about is that you're not in the tribulation right now. Basically what Paul says. So, let's get to today. And I, I love that because I've known plenty of Christians who are so tied up into eschatology that they've forgotten to live today. They don't love their neighbor. You know, I, the ones that I've met, I can tell they're bitter, they're anxious, they're angry, they're combative, they're arrogant, they're proud, and they, they're pursuing who's the Antichrist, where is he coming from, what are the times of the future and all of that. And they've forgotten to live in the commands of today. And that's a trick. It's a trick by the kingdom of darkness. So, Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God has chosen you from the beginning, 
for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that phrase? The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that is? Do I know what that is? Man, I mean, that is the ultimate, the ultimate of things. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions. We'll look at what traditions are. Which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And that refers back to verse 2 where Paul says, I don't know where you heard about the fact that you think you're in the day of the Lord, whether it was by a word or a letter. And Paul now is saying, by word or letter from us, here's the truth. Now, may our, and he's gonna, he closes this with a prayer before he gets to chapter 3. <clears throat> now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and a good hope by grace, Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And <clears throat> wonderfully, I'm always excited to see prayer come up because then I get to talk about it a little bit more. Or we get to learn about it a little bit more. Uh, we need to be praying for each other. But first, that's, that's coming. We need to be thankful for one another. Paul then moves from, in verses 1 through 12, we have the history of earthly events, the future coming of the Antichrist and tribulation, the apostasy to come, and all of that. And there's chaos in it. We looked at Revelation 13 and 14. It's a chaotic word. The chaos is here now. It's going to be at its peak in the tribulational period. And now Paul turns from the chaos of world kingdoms and kings to eternity and glory and security. You see, through this, what Paul has done here, he's writing this on purpose. This is called rhetoric, you know. Paul didn't sit down one day and say, you know what? I got nothing to do today. What should I do? I'll write a letter to the Thessalonians. It's not why he does it. There's always a reason why the their epistles, their letters, there's always a reason why they're written. And the re Paul has a very real reason to write this. He's encouraging them, and he's doing it purposely. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he's arranging his letter in a way so that God will speak to the Thessalonians in a certain way. And even though we're not Thessalonians in 45 or 48 A.D., whenever this was written, the principles of truth that God has put in this letter to the Thessalonians are eternal. But we have to know why he wrote it that helps us to understand the, the principles that are in the letter, particularly. And this principle of, yes, chaos is coming, yes, Antichrist is coming, yes, uh, apostasy is going to get even worse, but you are secure and I liken this to the, this is like eye of the storm passage. We talked about the storm for verses 1 through 12. Now we're going to go to you in the middle in the eye. And that eye, it's a good uh, image, because in this passage, one eye ha has to be in heaven, and one eye has to be here. If you get both eyes to heaven, you stumble here. Two eyes here, 
you don't have any purpose. Now, I know it's impossible unless you're like a gecko to look at two different things at the same time, but it'd be cool if you could. Uh, but you need to have one eye in heaven and one eye in what you're doing here. But while you're, see, if one of those gets messed up, you lose your peace. If you lose your purpose on earth, you lose your peace. If you lose your eye on God, you lose your peace. So, Paul says here, if you skip back to chapter 1, verse 3. Alan, can you give me slightly more volume? Just a little bit more. Thanks, buddy. There we go. Yeah, that's better. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Right? It sounds, it's identical, actually. The same word ought, which is translated should, in chapter 2.13. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> the word means that it's, he's obligated. Paul is obligated to give thanks for them. And though this isn't our subject for today, thankfulness, though it could have been, but I decided not to focus on that, um, we should be thankful. See, who is it, what is he thankful for? Not, it's not here the sunrise or the fact that he had a meal today, or that he didn't get a... Well, no, he's not arrested yet, so I didn't get arrested today. Uh, but he's thankful for other believers. In the first thankfulness, he's thankful that their faith is increasing and their love is increasing. He's thankful for the positive believer. You and I are positive believers in our lives, and you're probably thankful for him. The thing that I grasp from this is that, and I mean every once in a while, not every day, don't make it false, but you should tell him you're thankful for them. We can miss that. Paul, twice in the same letter, says, I ought to be thankful for you. And the second case of thanksgiving is for the fact that they're believers. And he's going to show us that we need to be thankful for the world of believers. And uh, they're not always behaving in a way that we're thankful for. But they have a sanctification and a destiny <clears throat> and a fulfillment and a completeness in Christ that we all have. We should be really thankful for that, even if they are struggling. So in this second one, <clears throat> Thanksgiving is more fundamental. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 13, he writes the second time that we ought to give thanks for them for the reason of a more fundamental that applies to all believers, which if we read it here, and I've got a kind of adjusted translation coming up for you on the board, is, and, and one word in particular that we're going to change here, uh, but this thankfulness for Christianity. Yeah, say it, it's someone you know is a believer or goes to a different church and maybe believes different things than you. If you're convinced that they're a believer, I mean, I know Catholics that I'm convinced that are believers, and I don't see eye to eye with them on certain doctrines. But and it, it's very easy to, you know, to kind of say, put them down or put a wall up between us. That's my brother and sister in Christ. I will openly tell them that I disagree. I became very good friends with Noe. Noe's a Pentecostal pastor somewhere here in Salem that I met at Corbin. Great guy. We're Facebook buddies. 
And we have marvelous discussions, but he believes in tongues and miracles, and I tell him openly I don't. We don't fight about it. What's the point of that? But we do fellowship on the things that we agree upon, which is 99% of it. Uh, but anyway, so <clears throat> here's, our, here's our translation. I put in yellow the things that I've changed. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as first fruits. Now, that's a big change. <clears throat> but I'll show you why. That word, first fruits, is exactly how it's translated in every other passage uh, that Paul uses it. And it depends upon whether, and this is one of those textual things where did Paul put a space, did he mean to put a space between these two letters or were they supposed to be together? And the reason why that's important, <coughs> excuse me, is that when, <coughs> sorry, the original manuscripts have no spaces at all. They're all capital letters. They just run and run and run because paper is expensive. And so, you know, there's, there's a P and an A. If there's a space between them, it means first fruits. If there's no space between them, it means from the beginning. But there is no space between them. So we'd have to get Paul here and ask him, did you mean the space? But what helps us is context. From the beginning works fine, because we know we are all elected from the foundation of the world. Right? From the beginning works just great. But the context of the passage really, to me anyway, and to other expositors, uh, seems to tend towards first fruits. Because he's talking about our sanctification, our faith in the truth, our obtaining the glory of Christ. And that's not a time thing. Like from the beginning is time, before the foundation of the world, which is true. It's a wonderful truth. But obtaining the glory of Christ, being sanctified, having faith in the truth, that speaks of a quality, a quality of believer. And we're going to say, we're going to see here that sanctification is positional. If you're familiar with that phrase, you're like, yeah, that's positional. And what's the other sanctification is experiential or practical. And <clears throat> you know what? Paul is never going to really draw lines between the two. And the reason is because if you are sanctified, which every believer is, you are wholly expected to be sanctified in life, in your behavior, in your conduct, in your thinking, and in your speech. There is to be no difference. And I think that is mess. I think that is meddled with Christian minds. They say, "Well, you know, I'm positionally sanctified. In other words, I'm saved and set apart unto God for all of eternity. I'm just not to the, you know, the advanced yet." And and this, there's no advanced here. <laughs> You're just to be who you are. Yes, we mature, and yes, we advance. That's very true. But I think when you have these categories that you separate. You, you tend to say, well, that's in the future. I'll get there later. But when are you supposed to be sanctified? The day you're saved, although you don't know how. But God doesn't, God doesn't give us a Bible for the early believer, the beginning believer, the mediocre believer, the adolescent believer. Right? There aren't separate commands or books. They're for us all. 
So first fruits, and then uh, by sanctification of the spirit and faith of the truth. That's not big changes, but um, it's I th- the their genitives, and we don't have to go into all of that. But they're uh, it's of the spirit and of the truth, and uh, that would mean here that we're talking about the day you became born again and saved, right? Of the Spirit or by the Spirit, you were sanctified. That's a baptism of the Spirit. You put faith of the truth. You put your faith in the gospel. <clears throat> so here's the word, first fruits, op, arche. Op is from, if there's a space here, then it's from the beginning. Arche means beginning. Uh, op, op is from the preposition apo, which means before. So from the beginning, but if there's no space, it's first fruits. So we're going to go with first fruits. And uh, the first fruits is, this is wonderful. It really is wonderful because this means that you're God's crop. So the first, if first fruits is, and the feast of first fruits, you would <coughs> harvest your field. I think the first thing that came in was barley. And you'd harvest your barley crop. And then you'd take a portion of it, and you'd take the good stuff. You know, not something that wasn't, that, you know, there's always going to be something that's not that great. But you're going to take the good stuff, and you bring it to the priest, and the priest waves it before God, and that's it. That's the offering. And the priest gets the grain to live on. And what you're doing is you're presenting to God, this is your crop and I'm thanking you for it. Thank you for your provision. Right? God who gives bread. Give us today our daily bread. This is it. Thank you. Now, for us, we're Christ's first fruits. So he took all of us in his arms. He brought us to the throne of God. He waved us in front of the Father and said, Father, this is my crop. And the father said, seriously? You proud of that? It looks, it looks diseased. <laughs> um, but would Christ present something diseased and rotten? There's beautiful parallels to this in the Old Testament where the Old Testament... Uh, in, in Israelites who were trying to, you know, they weren't worshiping God, not believing in God, but they knew they had to bring sacrifices, so they'd find some diseased lamb and bring that. God called them out on it. Don't bring me those lame lambs, he said. And Christ is not going to bring anything lame. In Ephesians 5, he says, I will present my bride holy, blameless, spotless. Dressed in white, beautiful. You and I are that now. And I'm not just, it's not like God's tricking himself and saying, I see you like that even though you're not. You are. And that's the point that Paul is making. Notice the wording here. You ought, let me go back, sorry. I give thanks to you because God has chosen you, elected you as first fruits, you're his crop. For salvation by set apart unto God, by the Spirit of God, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then faith of the truth, which the truth is God himself. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. So this is 
you in God, your finished product. And that's exactly how he sees you. So let's a uh, couple of instances of where this word is used, and then one more passage after that. So we're going to look at first fruits today, and let's go to Romans chapter eight. And we know the Thessalonians. If you remember, the Thessalonians are going through a lot of persecution. So you picture this, right? And the Lord told wonderful, easy parable on this, uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And you're the wheat, and you're surrounded by tares. And, and in the parable, the workers came to the owner of the field and said, should we tear up the tares? And he's like, no, you might tear up wheat, so let's leave them until the end of the age, and then I'll send in the reapers, and they'll get it right. You know, They'll get all the tares out. And so his, what he was saying there, speaking of this age of this mystery age between his first advent and his second advent, is that there would be believers and they'd be surrounded by those who, not unbelievers who are not set free and don't understand and they don't see and they don't hear. And they're going to be looking at your freedom and the way you live and your conduct, the light that you shine, the truth that you give. They're going to see it all. And what are they going to do? Persecute you. Mock you. And, there's got, and you've got Satan in the kingdom of darkness who are going to do all kinds of things to make trouble. So that you get your eyes off of Christ. And you'll get either both eyes on earth or both eyes in heaven or, you know, some way into which to muddle up your Christian life, your spiritual life. And they're going to do it relentlessly. And so, there's going to be suffering. Your bodies, you're not in the resurrection body yet, right? Was that, is that like an, is that a Captain Obvious statement, right? Um it's going to give you trouble. Your brain's going to give you trouble. Your children, your spouse, your work, your money, Fox News, whatever. It's going to give you trouble. God's going to allow them, put up walls in front of them. It's like Satan comes to the right, to Job. Does Job honor you for nothing? You put a hedge around him. Take the hedge away. We'll see how he reacts to you. He'll curse you to your face. God said, go do it. This, I, think, I personally think this happens all the time. Not to just Job-like believers. I think it happens to all of us. And that Satan says, what if I do this to them? They'll curse you to your face. They'll leave that Christian life. They'll leave that truth. They won't focus on it. They won't stay with it. God says, they're yours. God says, put up that wall, that barrier. And God then says to us, climb over it. And we're like, God, but I've been praying and praying for you to take away the wall. And God says, uh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to teach you to climb. And how are we going to climb? Romans 8.18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I can do this because I have wisdom, I have knowledge, I know what to do, 
I know what God's commands are to do, and despite the fact that this is hard and it's suffering, I know that the glory that is going to be revealed to me, and I, this glory here is also a glory in time that I'm going to see. The more I go through undeserved suffering, the more I'm going to see Christ. Because that was a foundation of his life. And I'm going to see, and you know, this crop, I mean, Christ, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15 is called first fruits. He's the first fruit of the human race, the first resurrected one. And we're called his first fruits. We're to be just like him. So when you go through these undeserved things and you say to yourself, well, you know, I'd rather not, but I'm going to see the glory of God when I go through this. And God, by the way, right? Paul's saying, there's no other way you're going to see it, by the way. You know, say, God, can I take the easy course? Is there some remedial course that I could take, you know, where I, what, what's it called when you just go show up and you don't actually in the class? I want to audit course Christianity. You got to do it. You got to live it. But I want to see your glory. Kind of like Moses, right? Moses in I think Exodus 33 said, can I see your glory? And God's like, no, you can't. But Moses went through it. But uh, for us, we will see the glory of Christ when we... And, and this boils down to who we are as first fruits. When we live as who we are in Christ, as the crop that we are, sanctified with faith and truth. We live, we live the way that we're called to live, which means keeping commands. We're going to see it. And if we don't do that, we're not going to see it. It's that simple. So I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Verse 18. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the fall. Not willingly. That's not just the fall of man, but the fall of the earth, right? The curse in the earth. But because of him who subjected it, God did it. In hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Notice the, the contrast between corruption and freedom. We, you and I, are free from corruption. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. That's op arche, same word. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So, the first fruits, we suffer, but we know it's coming. And so, despite the fact that we suffer, this glory that we know we're going to see is our hope. But, right, he says if you've seen it now, it's not a hope. But you're going to see it. You're going to see Christ more. You're going to see the Father more. The Holy Spirit who made you first fruits by baptism 
is the one who's going to, through this word, witness to you. It's Romans 8, 15, and 16. Rest right before this. He, he bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs also. So we're this new creation of a new, uh, indwelt by the spirit of a new life, a new world, a new kingdom. And what in the world are we doing messing around with the old crop? That's the message. Paul's saying, look, when the diseased crop mocks and persecutes and tries to meddle with God's precious crop, does that precious crop turn around and look at that diseased crop and act like it? Right? Wouldn't it be silly? You got this diseased thing, like I don't know, a tomato plant or something, and 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 you know, you've got this beautiful, glowing tomato plant, and that one says, you know what? I think I'll be diseased for a little while because the diseased one is making fun of me, or mocking me, or causing pressure. What in the world are we thinking? <laughs> you know, God God has them. God has them, wherever they are. He's going to deal with them. We don't have to deal with them. He's going to do, he's, he's got them in his hands, or they're not in his hands, or whatever the case may be, he's going to deal with them. We do not have to. So Christ tells us so plainly, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't judge. Right? Seek first my kingdom. Because you're in it. So you're God's personal crop. Delivered. You're delivered. What are you delivered from? That's your salvation. He called us unto salvation. Salvation means deliverance. You're delivered from sin, from evil, from corruption. I take the word corruption from Paul's use in Romans 8. The corruption of the flesh, of the mind, of the world. No longer under it. Live free. But you've got to have truth, right? Something has to set you free, and that's the truth. You've got to have the truth in your soul, which is what we do here. We've got to know Thessalonians, right? We've got to know these books. We've got to know Romans. We've got to know the principles of doctrine that are in Romans. There's a lot of false principles of doctrine out there, and we must weed through them. Delivered by sanctification and faith to obtain the glory of Christ. You're God's personal crop. I purposely put personal there because this you are the ultimate creation that God has made. The whole of human history is designed for this. For you. And, you know, you can, you can uh, be proud of that and be absolutely wonderfully humble about it as well. Because you know it's a gift. Right? Who am I to live this life like this? I'm the one that God made. It's not me. It's Him. He set me free. He gave me truth. He became a man and died for me so that I could have this life. I'm the first fruits. And therefore, you can be proud of it and also live it. James 1, another instance. Go to James 1. 
Now, here we see in James the fact that if we don't live and commit ourselves to what we are as first fruits, and by the way, as first fruits, as this crop, we have to obey the commands. No way around this. There's no cutesy little doctrine that gets you out of the fact that you need to keep the commands. You need to obey. Submit and obey. He is your Lord. Right? He has given you the way. There's a way to the kingdom. And we have to submit to that. If we don't submit to it, the elementary things of the world are going to become basically our lives. So it's, you know, I use chemistry as an initial uh, uh, um, illustration, but the elementary things that we get involved in are things like worry, my joy is only temporary because it's based on situations, right? So I'm tossed here and there by waves. As Paul, that's elementary principles of the world. And Paul, actually in Galatians 4, writes about the law being elementary principle of the world, the Mosaic law. And, and that turns into a legalistic, I'm going to work for God's favor, and if I'm doing well, then I'm great, and if I'm not doing well, I stink. And while that, in, at one level, is true, uh, what you are in Christ never changes. So forget about your performance and analyzing your performance. That's all in the past, right? What you did yesterday, if you had a great day or you were a horse's butt, uh, today's different. So what are you? And so the law is elementary principle. Temporary joy based on situations. Christians who worry, they're afraid, they pursue lust because they lack joy. That's elementary principle. People pursue their addictions or whatever, their distractions. That's another thing. An elementary principle is, you know, life is boring and mundane and, it, and, it's, and it's wearing me out, so I need a distraction. And where I'm, I'm under the, I'm under the clouds. I'm under the miry clay of the earth. I need stimulant. I need to pursue money because I'm not fulfilled in my soul. I need status. I need people to admire me and be jealous of me. And I need money. Uh, I need those Amazon boxes to keep coming, which I have a bit of an addiction to that. I'm working on it, but. Uh, <laughs> That, uh, you know, I need those boxes to come every day so I get a present every day. And what is this? I'm unfulfilled. I'm unjoyful. I'm not secure. I'm not set free in my Lord. And because that's true, I'm in these elementary principles just like the rest of the world. This should not be. So our man James, James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When are you going to receive the crown of life? That's in the future, right? So James and Paul in Romans 8 are talking about future things as if they're already here. And that's fulfillment. When you're born again, God gives you the destiny and the fulfillment. All of it comes with it. 
This is not, I'm born and I wonder what's going to happen to me. Am I going to succeed? Am I not? God says, you succeed. You obtain the glory of my son. You are sanctified. You have the truth. You must be what I have made you to be. You must be. Don't meddle around with how can I be this or be that. You are that. Jesus didn't say you're like the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Let no one say when he is tempted. So here it comes, right? I'm under trial. And here comes the temptation. The temptation is some way in which I can deal with the trial other than a godly way. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Not God. His own lust. Then when lust is conceived, and here James is using the imagery of having a baby. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So as James is saying, as God is saying through James, this is your fault. This is not God. Though you are going through a trial, your lust is desiring an out, or to make it easier, or to make it go away in some way. And that is your desire and lust for an easy way. So he says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's what we talked about all last week was deception. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And that means all creatures. So God only does good things. That's what James says here. Only good things come from God. He doesn't tempt you. And what is the good thing that James mentions is you're the first fruits. That's a good thing. He made you his crop. The good thing is not, I took the trial away. No. The good thing that comes from God, not temptation, but I made you my crop. And that's what you are. It will never change. Never. So we have the suffering in this present world. We have the suffering of temptation, the suffering of trials in James And we also have in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory to those to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 16. So both passages talking about first fruits, we also in both passages have trials and suffering. And in both passages, we have an end. Whether it's the crown of life, whether it's your inheritance or the redemption of your body in Romans 8. In both passages, we have birth and the end, and it's all given to us all at once. And while we possess this, and we're in this world, I love how theologians put this, we're in the already but not yet world. Believers are. Because you're already seated with Christ, you're already raised with Him, but you ain't yet. You're already glorified, Romans 8.30, you are glorified, for all its ultimate glorification, you are glorified, but not yet. And so you're stuck between two worlds. And it's a wonderful thing to know. You say, well, the worlds that I'm stuck between, 
is earth and heaven. And I'm going to be tempted and I'm going to go through trial and I'm going to be surrounded by people who are not of heaven. And some maybe who claim to be and they're actually not. And they're going to persecute, they're going to cause me trouble and problems. And I say, God, why can't they just go away? And God's like, well, for them to go away, you'd have to go away. Because the world's full of them, buddy. So what's the plan here? You do remember I'm sovereign, right? None of this has happened that I was like, oh, why did that happen? No, that none of that has happened. I have controlled every bit of it. You're stuck in it. Now learn to live. Learn to walk. Like I love it. The scripture says you walk in a manner worthy. That's a manly, womanly walk. Not crawling like a baby. Walking. Strong, confident. And when you fall, get up. Tack with the excuses. Walk with me. That's the life. That's the the new crop. All right, one last one. Go to Ezekiel 36. And then we'll close. That's it. Ezekiel 36, 24. So what actually we're doing here is we're going back to a prophecy by the prophet Ezekiel of the new crop. And, um, you know, there's going to be some contention here amongst people because this is a promise to Israel, to the nation of Israel. And this will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Christ to the nation of Israel. No doubt about it. So I am not a proponent, uh, nor I'm sure are you, of the fact that the church has replaced Israel or the covenants of Israel. No. The covenants are going to be fulfilled for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, the saved people of Israel, during the millennial reign of Christ at his second coming. That is going to happen. So our birth is immediately our fulfillment. And I find this just fascinating. You know, th- this is one of those principles for me that once you've, you've learned a lot of passages, and I won't even say a lot because I've got so far to go. The Bible is enormous, in case you haven't noticed. It's enormous. But um, Every once in a while, for me at least, and I'm sure this is, happens to you, is as I'm, as I'm putting together this principle and that principle or this doctrine and that doctrine, something kind of pops out. Like, you know, you pulled the arm on the, and you, on, the, on the slot machine. <laughs> you see, I'm not much of a gambler. Um, and uh, my, that doesn't mean I'm a good guy. My sins lie elsewhere. But, uh, you know, you pull... Obviously, I'm a left-handed slot machine player, and you pull, and uh, bam, something comes out. And you're like, wow, you know. And maybe everybody else in the human or in the church has already seen that. But if it's a revelation to you, oh, bask in it. Don't worry, don't worry about who knows it. This is not a competition. And this is one of them to me. This is alive to me lately. Our birth is immediately our fulfillment. And nothing else on earth is born that way. 
Nothing. Everything born in this world could die soon, last a long time, you know, relative to what it is. It could die, we'll go with humans. You could die a miserable death at a young age. You could get a disease. You could live to be 100. You could live to be 100 and be a miserable, you know what, for your whole life. Uh, or you could be the most wonderful, healthy person who never drank, smoked, or chewed, or go with a dude, and, and you died at 20 because something happened. I don't know. Who knows? All right, we, we watched a bit of uh, a documentary on 9-11 because that just went by, and it was wonderful to kind of relive that and see, you know, what, 3,000 and plus people die in those towers. And, the, and the, you know, then the, this documentary has the, the video of it where there's, you know, they're, they're in one building and then all of a sudden the, the tower was the second one that went down first. And they, they said the whole thing shook and they heard this big noise and they were like, what the heck was that? And they came out the door and the tower was gone. It's like my, my buddies were in there. <clears throat> the You know, firemen and policemen and people who went to work at the World Trade Center that day, they didn't know that was their last day. Stuff happens. And for us, see what God has done here? No matter what happens between, on your gravestone, there's, if you have a gravestone, I don't know, maybe you don't, I don't know why you wouldn't, but uh, the date of your birth and the date of your death, there's a dash, and that dash is your life which is appropriate because it's so short. And God says, you know what happens to you during that time? It's only, implica- it's only meaning is when you glorify me with it. That's it. Everything else is not important. How much money you had, how, old you, how long you lived, where you lived, whether you had one parent or two or no parents or you were an orphan, whether you were martyred, whether you lived to be a hundred, whether you had a lot, you had a little, all of those details matter nothing. It's what I gave you. What did you do with it? Because for every one of you, you're my crop. You're my plant. You're the branch that's connected to the vine. So bear fruit. And, it, and, and God says, look, I've fulfilled this. So you're with me no matter what you do. Right? This is eternal security. I would love to spend another 20 minutes going into all the various theories about that people have because it scares the pants off them, some theologians. It scares them to tell people they have eternal security because then they'll just run out and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, Sue, you say, no, I did it. (laughs) Yes. But God chased me down. I'm still a work in progress, but God has his divine two-by-four. And he wallops you with it. I'm so grateful for it. Death looms everywhere, doesn't it? It's everywhere. But not with you. Not with you. God's crop. Death is no longer our master. What is? 
eternal life. Let's read Ezekiel because I'm out of time here. Ezekiel 36.24 For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I have given you a new heart. I want you to see this in terms of your salvation now, by the way. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It means it's responsive, malleable. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Now this is to Israel, correct? Absolutely. But we also have here the indwelling of the Spirit, the innate desire to follow God. He's not going to force us. No one has ever been forced to follow God, but he says, I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. What is that? Well, we're going to have to save that for Tuesday. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's various interpretations of what water here means. Spirit's pretty clear. That's baptism of the Spirit. What's the water? And I myself am convinced that it's what you just read. I'm going to cleanse you. And I'm going to give you my Spirit. It's the fulfillment of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. But you see what he, did, what he said here? I'm going to remove it from you, the filthiness of all your idols. I'm going to sprinkle you clean, and I'm going to give you a new heart. That's God's crop. That's you. You have this. Take advantage of it. I say the same to myself. Take advantage of it. It's all there. It's all ready to go. Live. Live free. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone have set us free and made us who we are. We are your creation, your new creation, born again of water and of the Spirit. And so we are members of an eternal kingdom. Therefore, our destiny is secure. You have given us birth and fulfillment in the same moment. Thank you, Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. In his name we pray, amen. Let's pray for our offering. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give as your priests, we give to you and sacrifice to you as, as we see fit, Father. As you know, as you say, you love a joyful giver. And so we do give to you, Father, out of the joy of our hearts and worship of you. We ask that you bless this offering in Christ's name. Amen.
Uh, so uh, Chris and I went to a garage sale um, two days ago, and uh, we bought that table. Nice. Yeah, they were uh, their daughters moving out, family in Dallas, Christian family. And then they had these two massive bookcases that were going real cheap, and so I bought them because I've already I need more room. And uh, so Lance and I were here yesterday trying to fit them down the stairs, and uh, my back can tell you that it was it's unsuccessful. So I'm throwing it out there for any of you able-bodied young men, which basically means Caleb. Um, I don't know how we're going to get them down here, but if we could, that'd be awesome. Yeah, well, if you have to break them, oh well. They were pretty cheap, but anyway. Let's close in prayer now that I put that on you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our gathering and for your tremendous grace, what you have blessed us with. May we all heed it and take it into our hearts and rejoice in the gift. For those, anyone listening who has not believed in Christ as their Savior, the gift is for you as well as it is for everyone. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. And so he died for your sins. He's just waiting for you to reach out your hand and take his gift. And I can tell you exactly how to do that. It is to believe upon him. By faith, believe that Christ is the Savior of the world. Your personal Savior. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. He died there for your sins. He was judged in your place. And he was raised again on the third day. He did not remain in the grave, but is alive. Seated at the right hand of God now. And he awaits you. He's coming again. And you want to be on the right side of that when he does. So believe upon him and you will be saved from eternal judgment. Thank you, Father, and bless this day for us. In Christ's name, amen.